Section 9 of Invisible Links This is a LibriVox recordings. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander Invisible Links by Selma Lagerlöf Translated by Pauline Bancroft Flack The King's Grave, Part 4 Geoffrey, however, could not at once decide to obey Tönne. She fought a long and severe fight. But one morning she awoke in an unusually calm and gentle mood. Then she thought that she could now do what he demanded. And she waked him, saying that it should be as he wished, only that one day he should grant her to say farewell to everything. The whole forenoon she went about strangely gentle. Tears rose easily to her eyes. The heath was beautiful that day, for her sake, she thought. Frost had passed over it, the flowers were gone, and the whole moor had turned brown. But when it was lighted by the slanting rays of the autumn sun, it looked as if the heather glowed red once more. And she remembered the day when she saw Tönne for the first time. She wished that she might see the old king once more for he had helped her to find her happiness. She had been seriously afraid of him of late. She felt as if he were lying in wait to seize her, but now she thought he could no longer have any power over her. She would remember to look for him towards night when the moon rose. It happened that a couple of wandering musicians came by about noon. Geoffrey had the idea to ask them to stop at her house the whole afternoon, for she wished to have a dance. Tönne had to hasten to her parents and ask them to come, and her small brothers and sisters ran down to the village for the other guests. Soon many people had collected. There was great gaiety. Tönne kept apart in a corner of the house, as was his habit when they had guests, but Jofrid was quite wild in her fun. With shrill voice she led the dance, and was eager in offering her guests the foaming ale. There was not much room in the cottage, but the fiddlers were untiring, and the dance went on with life and spirit. It grew suffocatingly warm. The door was thrown open, and all at once Geoffrey saw that night had come, and that the moon had risen. Then she went to the door and looked out into the white world of the moonlight. A heavy dew had fallen. The whole heath was white, as the moon was reflected in all the little drops which had collected on every twig. There Tönne and she would go to-morrow, hand in hand, to meet the most terrible dishonour. For, however the meeting with the peasant should turn out, whatever he might take or whatever he might let them keep, dishonour would certainly be their lot. They, who that evening possessed a good cottage and many friends, to-morrow would be despised and detested by all. Perhaps they would also be robbed of everything they had earned, perhaps, too, be dishonoured slaves. She said to herself, It is the way of death, and now she could not understand how she would ever have strength to walk in it. It seemed to her as if she were of stone, a heavy stone image like old King Atle. Although she was alive, she felt as if she would not be able to lift her heavy stone limbs to walk that way. 
She turned her eyes towards the king's grave and distinctly saw the old warrior sitting there. But now he was adorned as for a feast. He no longer wore the grey moss-grown stone attire, but white glittering silver. Now again he wore a crown of beams, as when she first saw him, but this one was white, and white shone his breastplate and armlets, shining white were sword, hilt, and shield. He sat and watched her with silent indifference. The unfathomable mystery which great stone faces wear had now sunk down over him. There he sat dark and mighty, and Geoffrey had a faint, indistinct idea that he was an image of something which was in herself and in all men, of something which was buried in far-away centuries, covered by many stones, and still not dead. She saw him, the old king sitting deep in the human heart. Over its barren field he spread his wide king's mantle. Their pleasure danced, their love of display flaunted. He was the great stone warrior who saw famine and poverty pass by without his stone heart being moved. It is the will of the gods, he said. He was the strong man of stone who could bear unatoned for sin without yielding. He always said, Why grieve for what you have done, compelled by the immortal gods? Geoffrey's breast was shaken by a sigh deep as a sob. She had a feeling which she could not explain, a feeling that she ought to struggle with a man of stone if she was to be happy but at the same time she felt helplessly weak. Her impenitence and the struggle out on the heath seemed to her to be one and the same thing, and if she could not conquer the first by some means or other, the last would gain power over her. She looked back towards the cottage, where the weavings glowed under the roof timbers, where the musicians spread merriment, and where everything she loved was, then she felt that she could not go into slavery. Not even for Tönne's sake could she do it. She saw his pale face within the house, and she asked herself with a contraction of the heart if he was worth the sacrifice of everything for his sake. In the cottage the people had started a new dance. They arranged themselves in a long line, took each other by the hand, and with a wild, strong young man at the head, they rushed forward at dizzy speed. The leader drew them through the open door out onto the moonlit heath. They stormed by Geoffrey, panting and wild, stumbling against stones, falling into the heather, making wide rings round the house, circling about the heaps of stones. The last of the line called to Geoffrey and stretched out his hand to her. She seized it and ran too. It was not a dance, only a mad rush, but there was pleasure in it, audacity and the joy of living. The rings became bolder, the cries sounded louder, the laughter more boisterous. From cairn to cairn, as they lay scattered over the heath, wound their line of dancers. If anyone fell in the wild swinging, he was dragged up. The slow ones were driven onward. The musicians stood in the doorway and played the faster. There was no time to rest, to think, nor to look about. 
the dance went on at always madder speed over the yielding moss and slippery rocks. During all this, Jofrid felt more and more clearly that she wished to keep her freedom, that she would rather die than lose it. She saw that she could not follow Tönne. She thought of running away, of hurrying into the wood and never coming back. They had circled about all the cairns except that of King Atle. Jofrid saw that they were now turning towards it, and she kept her eyes fixed on the stone man. Then she saw how his giant arms were stretched towards the rushing dancers. She screamed aloud, but she was answered by a loud laughter. She wished to stop, but a strong grasp drew her on. She saw him snatch at those hurrying by, but they were so quick that the heavy arms could not reach any of them. It was incomprehensible to her that no one saw him. The agony of death came over her. She thought that he would reach her. It was for her that he had lain in wait for many years. With the others it was only play. It was she whom he would seize at last. Her turn came to rush by King Atle. She saw how he raised himself and bent for a spring to be sure of the matter and catch her. In her extreme need she felt that if she only could decide to give in the next day, he would not have the power to catch her, but she could not. She came last, and she was swung so violently that she was more dragged and jerked forward than running herself, and it was hard for her to keep from falling. And although she passed at lightning speed, the old warrior was too quick for her. The heavy arm sank down over her, the stone hand seized her. She was drawn into the silvery harness of that breast. The agony of death took more and more hold of her. But she knew to the very last that it was because she had not been able to conquer the stone king in her own heart that Atle had power over her. It was the end of the dancing and merriment. Jofrid lay dying. In the violence of their mad route, she had been thrown against the king's cairn and received her death-blow on its stones. End of Part 4 of The King's Grave From Invisible Links by Selma Lagerlöf Translated by Pauline Bancroft Flack Read by Lars Rolander